Hi everyone, welcome to another episode on the FESTA show. Today on the show I had Craig Patterson, who is a third year PhD student at the University of Gloucestershire. His research utilises non-invasive assessment of cardiovascular function to investigate the acute detrimental effects of sedentary behaviours, particularly prolonged sit-in. We spoke mainly about prolonged sit-in in this podcast and we also spoke about ways of combating this. We also spoke about Craig's PhD, how he's enjoying it at the University of Gloucestershire, and he gives some useful tips on what he recommends for anyone who wants to study a PhD. So without further ado, let's get straight into it. All right, we are live on the FESTA show, another episode. Today with me, I've got Craig Patterson. Craig, how are we doing, mate? Very good, thank you, FESTA. How are you? I'm good, mate. What do you actually think of my podcast title of the Festa show I couldn't even think at the time what else to call it but I thought I just want to make it simple but <laughs> I mean it's pretty descriptive if someone knows that your name's Joe Festa but <laughs> <laughs> not sure what else you'd call it it's done now isn't it it's done it's known as the Festa show but on this podcast talk to different PhD students and other researchers about the research so we'll get into it. Craig, do you want to just tell the listeners then uh, what you're studying and at what university? Yeah, so I'm a third year PhD student at the University of Gloucestershire uh, and broadly our group looks at the cardiovascular and cardiometabolic consequences mm-hmm. of sedentary behaviour and particularly prolonged say. Nice, awesome. And then just before starting PhD, you've done undergrad? And that was our Gloucester, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I am UOG uh, through and through. So I did my undergrad there in sport and exercise science for the for the three years, and then went straight to PhD, which uh, maybe wasn't my sharpest move. But uh, but yeah, now I'm three years. Well, this is my third year now, my PhD. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. When you were studying undergrad, did you always know that you wanted to do a PhD? Um, I don't know. Uh, I think when I started, like when I started my undergrad, I was convinced I were because I was big into my uh, my powerlifting, my strength training at the time. I thought that I would go down that route. You know, I was going to just become a very well versed, science informed coach. But you know, as you get to uni, your interests change. Um, and I did think uh, probably about the second year, I thought I'd quite like to do a master's, quite like to do a PhD. Um, initially, I was going to go down the route of psychology, but I slowly got, I, I slowly got uh, convinced that physiology was the, was the better route. Mm-hmm. But yeah, probably from about the second year, uh, I thought I wanted to do a PhD. Okay. Yeah, because I remember you saying when we met, well, I should tell the listeners now, me, me and you both know each other, studied, well, you studied sports science, I studied S&C, but same institution, same years, so, and we shared a lot of modules, didn't we, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. we've always been mates, and I even remember you saying an undergrad, before you applied to university, you were looking for an S&C undergrad then, weren't you? Oh. Yeah, yeah, I was, um, but after a few, you know, that's how I ended up looking at the original institutions that I looked at was because I looked at ones that were, you know, you know well suited to do an SNC undergrad. Well, I went to I went to one open day at an institution, 
and I remember asking the the course leads, you know, like, you know, what what other things could I do with this degree? And he said, I made this just for people who want to be S and C coaches. And at that point, I was a bit like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want to go too narrow too soon. You know, I'm very glad that I didn't. Um, so yeah, S and C was originally what I looked at, but ended up just going broader because I thought it would probably it, it more options is better, right? Generally speaking, um, and ultimately turned out to be a good decision, I'd say. Yeah, because we both know as well, sports science is a very broad. Well, that's why it's called sports science, isn't it? Because you've got the psychology, you've got some parts of nutrition. It covers a lot of aspects, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, sport and exercise science, uh, (laughs) you know, you'd expect me to say it. But it is a challenging degree program. And it's something that sometimes gets uh, scoffed at a bit by people. I know, like, when I say I'm doing a PhD in sport and exercise science, you know, I get questions like, oh, so you want to be a PE teacher? And I'm like, well, no, that's not why I'm doing a PhD. Yeah. Uh, or once you do that, I do a pro- professional doctorate or something. Um, but you're right; you have to know an awful lot about. You need to know. You need to know quite a bit about a lot of different things, ranging from physiology to biomechanics, psychology, are kind of your three pillars. And it's only it's only after the second or third year you can start to specialize a little bit more. I think it's harder than people would give it yeah. give it its props for. Definitely. No, definitely. But I think the main point I was trying to get at, I think, with sports science is it's nice that it is broad, that you're covering different aspects. Because in your position, you thought you wanted to go down the psychology. and Because yeah. uh, your dissertation was psychology, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, my undergrad one was. Um, but obviously, because you have to plan that, um, certainly at UOG, you have to plan that dissertation in your second year. So then you've got, obviously, the whole of your third year to, to do it. At that point, I was, you know, I was all guns blazing psychology. You know, I had a, I had a confirmed master's place at another institution. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'd done that, sort of that really early. But then it was over the course of that final year that I started working on projects with my now supervisor. Uh, and that ultimately swayed me. I think it just shows the importance of sometimes not always trying to pick too early and just having other options isn't it yeah i think so because if you if someone definitely knows exactly what they want to do lucky them crack on like i always thought i knew what i wanted to do but then you know things change yeah i i suppose that's probably part of my character as well like i i if i find something interesting i'll end up sort of just diverting down it for a little bit and then resurface and then go down another rabbit hole but i think ultimately that that helps you know Mm -hmm. i think uh being able to to be able to be interested in a lot of different things and keep those options open is a good thing yeah so you said when you were in undergrad third year you got involved with some other projects how did that come about uh, yeah, so I, at that time, I was working in the university's performance lab, which is a lab where internal and external clients can come in for physiological performance tests, you know, VO2 maxes, lactate thresholds. Um, and I answered to the lab director, uh, 
Dr. Simon Fryer, uh, and he ultimately said, do you want to help out on, on this project that he was working on, which was looking at the effect of prolonged sitting and the, uh, on central and peripheral arterial stiffness and how the ingestion of different meals might impact that. So, I, yeah, I suppose I got involved in it from working in a performance setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I then got invited to work on this, which is much more sort of uh, health and exercise physiology, uh, more so than sport and performance. And then I, ju- I just caught the bug for it. I, I thought it was a really interesting area and something that is, you know, pr- prolonged sitting is so prevalent that there are there are almost unlimited questions that you could ask about it. Uh, and that's where, yeah, that's where I ended up. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, is that you went straight from undergrad, PhD, same institution. Yeah. I, don't, I just want to know if you can highlight a little bit or delve into a bit into that, just to what it's like going straight from undergrad to a PhD and staying at the same institution? I would, I would say like, I've, I feel like I've made the best of it. You know, the real benefit of staying at an institution, others might disagree. Um, but I'd already fostered good relationships with the, the staff, with technician, with all those people around you, you already have a, network that's been established for you know the three years of your undergrad and then onwards um so that's i I, that's the real key benefit because people know you they know what you are capable of and they invite you to get involved in other projects and you get this collaborative this collaborative network that comes together really easily whereas i think sometimes if you have to change institution there are obvious benefits to that because obviously you can make your network wider and you can see how different institutions were. But you're kind of starting not from square one, but you, you've got to build that up again. Um, but in terms of going straight from an undergrad to a PhD, don't do it. <laughs> it's, it it's so hard. Yeah. Um, again, I feel like I've made the best of it. But it, it, it's such a steep learning curve because you go from, you know, you go from your final year of your undergrad, which at the time you think, oh, that's hard. And then, and then straight into a PhD, it was, uh, that first year was, was tough mm-hmm. you know, because you are, you, you are suddenly going from you know, level six to level eight. You've, met, you've skipped an entire step. Yeah. Uh, and most people that I've spoken to will say that their master's was probably the hardest year because it's a really short, hard year because it's that step up. But going straight into the PhD was difficult. Yeah. Put it that way. But I was very fortunate, I think, because I stayed at an institution and I have, I have great supervisors, I have a great collaborative team, it made it easier. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, obviously, you'll, you'll know uh, University of Gloucester is quite a, it is a small institution, um, but you build up a really good relationship uh, with those around you. I'm very fortunate, like I say, my, my supervisors are they're very generous with their time. Uh, they're very hands-on. And it, 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 just made, it did make it easier, but 
it was still very difficult. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely no right or wrong between, oh, do I say, do I stay at the same institution or do I change? I think it all depends on the situation. I yeah, think it depends is the answer to most questions, right? Like, should <laughs> I say or should I go? Depends. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really important because I think when people look for a PhD, they're trying to think, oh, what what is the best for me? And there's no right or wrong answer. Like I said, for myself, I personally decided to switch institutions for both masters and PhD. But it has its pros and cons, isn't it? And I think you're one of the first people I've spoken to that stayed at the same institution. So it was just good to know, really, from uh, your perspective, why you thought, why you think staying at an institution is better. And I definitely agree. I know people at De Montfort who have stayed there since undergrad, undergrad masters. And as you said, because you know everyone, it's you're avoiding that process of starting from square one again. You just you just carrying on the work. So yeah, people know what skills you have and they know how you work. You know, assuming you are relatively good at what you do and you are productive, people, you know, if you're at that institution, people will invite you to be involved with more things, uh, which ultimately keeps, like in my case, it's kept my knowledge base broader. Uh, it's no good staying at the same institution if you're rubbish, you know, if you are not overly productive, if, you know, if you get that uh, reputation, then, then you might as well go somewhere else yeah. uh, and, and kind of reset. I think, yeah, I think it all depends on how well you're doing at that institution. I think that will just come natural to any person, doesn't it? I think if you try forcing yourself to stay there, that's when you're going to be like, no, this is just not for you. You Move on. That is the better situation, isn't it? That's it. And, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate in in Gloucester Mm. that uh, a good number of of my friends from my undergrad are still local. So got like I know the city I know the institution and I have a good network here you know a support network of friends and and everything else and it's you know it, it can be quite daunting to up sticks and move you almost say the path of least resistance where where you've got that network already and then just talking about the undergrad to PhD I remember when we were speaking you say and just the because I was studying my master's at the time when you were in your first year. And yeah, the difference you were saying is massive, isn't it? And I even remember, because I think one thing you highlighted well there as well, most people do say that master's is the most intense year. And I can definitely say from my own studying that, yeah, just because it's, it's like a degree just fitted into one year and it's just... Yeah, super. So you've still got breadth within that degree you know, that master's degree, but it's at a level seven. So like you say, you're, you're, you're cramming so much in to one year. <laughs> but then, like I say, going up, to a le- going up to level eight, going up to that first year of PhD. Mm. Um, the tricky thing as well is you, because you're kind of broad by the end of, you know, you've got a broad, not broad-ish knowledge uh, when you finish your undergrad, but it's at level six. You know, you need that kind of, but at a higher level for the masters, which I think sets people up better for a PhD. Yeah. 
I think, again, I was fortunate that the area that I'm working on in my PhD were projects that I was involved in yeah. uh, final year of my undergrad. So if anything, that maybe softened it a little, but yeah, still tough. Yeah, I think you highlighted some good points there. A master's definitely prepares you better for a PhD because it's one or two decisions. You either go into work, industry, or whatever you'd like to do, or you, you go the PhD route. Whereas with undergrad, it's not really trying to prepare you for a PhD. It's either trying to prepare you for a master's or yeah. work. And I think definitely I noticed that the master's, even though it was the hardest year, it definitely prepared me quite well. But what was the biggest difference in going straight into PhD? Like, what do you think you struggled with, or what was the biggest transition then? I think, you know, a big thing was going from some level of, you know, undergrad is still, it's a very nurturing environment. You know, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to help your undergrads become graduates. But then at a PhD level, you, you are a graduate. You are supposed to be, you know, the PhD, you are trying to create an independent researcher. Uh, so that was kind of, that was difficult. And again, I had great support, but it's still difficult because you are expected to go to a much higher level of thinking and planning and your, essentially your knowledge is supposed to be at this much higher level. But you have to try and get there semi-independently mm-hmm. uh, and then the other aspect of it I think was for me personally was it's kind, of, it's kind of the writing style and the criticality that comes in within your thinking you know you are at, you know an undergrad level you almost don't need to justify your thinking quite as much yeah you, know, you can make a statement and kind of they almost become throwaway Whereas at the PhD, like you need to back up everything, uh, which I quite like, you know, uh, I feel that's a good way to be, but it can be quite exhausting as well because you're always asking questions. You're always questioning, uh, you know, when you're reading something, you're like, eh, does, does that fit? Does that make sense? The inferences you're making uh, line up with the data that you're presenting or how that kind of looks within the broader field you know of that area yeah that way and then like say writing style because you're going from writing for assignments to writing for publication and that is an it's enormously different and that's something that i know has has been a real challenge for me but i I think it's on a general upwards trend we're talking about publication but would you not agree that the writing style for a publication comparison with the actual thesis itself is quite different. It's more yeah, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, again, that's quite... Uh, that's, again, quite difficult because a thesis, you can... Obviously, I haven't written a thesis in full yet, so, <laughs> so I don't know. Um, but broadly, I think, you, you know, you're, you can afford a bit of waffle you know, there's a bit of padding. Whereas when you're writing for, for publication, it's very much, yeah. Um, 
precision of thought economy of expression. How can I say this in the least amount of words possible while still being coherent? And that's quite a, it's quite a skill. And something actually that I don't, I don't think is particularly well fostered in a lot of undergraduate programs, you know, writing skills, because ultimately uh, I don't know what it was like at master's, obviously I didn't, didn't do it. But bearing in mind that the main way that most uh, institutions will assess you at undergrad, at master's, and then obviously as you go on, if you decide to go on from there, most of it will be written assessments. I don't think there's actually a lot of tuition, a lot of guidance about how to write well. Which then means when you get to a, you know, when you are trying to, if you got taught how to write your uh, undergrad projects really well, you kind of, again, you'd soften that learning curve when you then get to try and write for publication. Uh, whereas you, get, you just don't, I don't think you get that. Certainly you didn't with our undergrad program. Definitely. I really agree with that. I think undergrad programs don't really, I don't, I don't even know if they're really there for that though, but they don't, they definitely don't prepare you as much for the kind of writing style you need for PhD, do they? And the critical thinking of researchers that is required, you know, to do a PhD and to do research, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. But like, like you said earlier, the, the, the undergraduate degree isn't really meant for that. Yeah. That's kind of why you do the masters It's preparing you. It's preparing you for a next step. You know, no one expects you to finish your undergraduate and be an expert in something, but they expect you to be quite broad. So it's very difficult when you're trying to construct an undergraduate degree to think of all the different things that, Oh yeah, no, we should do like, in terms of uh, our program, our writing style, laboratory skills, and then obviously all the other stuff, underpinning knowledge of physiology, biomechanics, psychology, mm. uh, and then more applied, uh, like your nutrition, uh, programming, this sort of stuff. Yeah, you can't fill that in. No. <laughs> so, so you kind of, um, like what, what are the most important aspects to ensure that this person can graduate with a degree in this? And actually, perhaps writing style isn't, that, that's not the key outcome. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think broadly, like, I can't really comment on left for us. I was more just on the masters, but even at the Montfort, I've not, but they cover a lot, like it's, it's accredited by IBMS, which is the uh, Federation for Biomedical Science and they def it's a very practical course in terms of they have a lot of practicals covering different techniques in the lab and so they have to make sure it develops them for a biomedical scientist does that necessarily mean they're going to become a research researcher not really they might want to go down the nhs route and they have to make sure they're, they're doing the fulfillment for that accreditation yeah. and not necessary for researchers so i think it's yeah it's definitely hard isn't it i think it's hard to try and, as you said, fit it all into three years. Um, yeah, trying to fit it into three years, but keep it broad enough that people could go into research in that area if they wanted to, do what you did and kind of really diversify what you're doing. Or people that just want to go on a graduate scheme or, you know, even people that just got a degree because they felt like they should. Yeah. Uh, and then just go back home and work whatever job. So you're, you know, you're trying to 
you know, you can't cater for all those routes. Yeah. You can't cater for them all perfectly. You know, you, you do the best you can, you lay the foundation and then uh, hopefully the route then that they go down mm. facilitates those next steps. Yeah, definitely. I think the advantage both me and yourself had was we were helping out with that project with Sci, SciFry. And SciFry's always been, when he's talking to undergrads, I feel like he really, anyone who's interested in research, he really makes sure to like kind of guide them with that, doesn't he? With, sorry, SciFry's yours. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Simon Fryer, um, he, he's exceptionally generous with his time. Yeah. Um, probably more so, probably to his detriment at times. He's super generous. If you put work in, he'll put work in with you. Mm -hmm. um, and he does a really good job of fostering a really nice collaborative network. And, and certainly, I think if I hadn't been involved with that project, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what I would have what I would gone and done psychology, I suppose. But, but yeah, he's, he, he's very nurturing. He's very, uh, yeah, yeah just in case he listens and won't say anything too nice, but you couldn't yeah, ask for, yeah, you, you couldn't ask for a better supervisor. I'm not getting paid. To, you're not getting paid to do this. So if you do listen to this, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just remember that when you're picking an internal examiner and <laughs> the nice things I said, but no, the reason I was just highlighting that is just because, well, you can say, you can argue this, but I feel like with you, with yourself, uh, through your PhD and the work you were doing during your undergrad, he was really focused on, building you to kind of become this researcher that as you're going along the PhD, you've really tried to publish whilst doing it. Um, it's different for everyone. And there's, again, this is similar to the institution thing. There's no right or wrong, but I feel like with you, he's really tried to get you thinking more like a researcher earlier on, just so you can try and publish as you go rather than just uh, finish the PhD or try and do it just before finishing. Yeah, I, I, like I said, it, dep it depends on the field, depends on the institution. Um, but ours comes down to it's a really great network within the institution and with our external collaborators that, you know, generally we're quite small teams. So we all get involved with different things um, and we're always doing different projects, but it allows you to... Uh, so, for example, we collaborate very heavily with an institution in the U.S. Uh, who are, uh, they're an enormous institution and they can rattle through data collection. You know, they can get participants through the door. So the logical thing, okay, well, we'll let guys at UOG do the analysis. And so you pick up, uh, just pick up extra skills and you get involved in extra publications which means that you are, A, you have more skills, you have more publications, and it kind of, it sets you up for that research career. You know, as, um, as a prime example, but only by virtue of the various projects that I've worked on, was I able to very quick, so I had to adapt my PhD, my experimental, uh, the experimental aspect of my PhD, I had to change massively in line with uh, COVID restrictions and, you know, the six, six months or so of not being able to do anything practical. The only reason I was able to pivot and change what we were doing very quickly was because built up a lot of skills in that first uh, 18 months. 
uh, and that is in large part due to Simon and our, our broad, the, the broader bunch of people that are above me in that, in that tree. So what did change as part of the project then? How has it changed so much? Yeah, so I was, originally I was, um, the whole project was going to look at the effect of prolonged sitting, which is a, which is a really common sedentary behavior, makes up a majority. For office workers in developed world, it represents a majority of their waking hours. So that's, that's, uh, that's our main research area. And then unpacking, and there's this, there's this real quite strong link between increased sedentary time and increased risk of cardiovascular disease or cause mortality, the rest of it. But obviously when you are, it, it's very rare that someone is just sitting. You know, there are other things going on. You know, you're eating, you're drinking, you're talking, you're working, you're getting stressed, whatever. So my initial project was going to be looking at the effect of prolonged sitting with and without mental stress, because mental stress can affect the cardiovascular system uh, through different mechanisms than prolonged sitting does, but lead to similar outcomes. So it should stand to reason perhaps that prolonged sitting with mental stress presents more of a cardiovascular burden than either of them in isolation. So to assess that, I was going to use an ultrasound-based technique called flow-mediated dilation, which essentially ultrasound on a vessel induce hyperemic stress. So that's a big sudden increase in blood flow uh, and see how much that artery dilates in response to the flow, i.e. flow-mediated dilation. But flow-mediated dilation, FMD, is really difficult. It's a really difficult skill. Um, you know, you're talking... Yeah, a really healthy dilation response is maybe 10%. But when you're talking about an artery that's maybe four millimeters, it, you have to be super, super precise. And having, having kind of six months off of not being able to use an ultrasound, not being able to practice it, it was going to take me another six months to get proficient at it again when we got back. So... During the, the first lockdown here, I started working on a, on a meta-analysis looking at the effect of uh, blood pressure responses in response, blood pressure responses in response, uh, weapons to blood pressure during prolonged sitting, during an acute bout of prolonged sitting. And the results kind of pivoted. Uh, what it showed essentially was that those who are younger seemed to get a more pronounced blood pressure response, i.e. the blood pressure increases more than someone who is older. But the interesting thing was that most of those trials, the, the ones that included young folk, went for young, healthy, recreationally active. And those that recruited uh, older, you know, even middle-aged, aged, older uh, participants, typically went for people who were sedentary. So it's raised the question of, okay, so is this response mediated by age or is it mediated by fitness, habitual activity, that sort of stuff? 
So now we've managed to pivot the project. So it's still sedentary behavior, but it's looking at the differences between high fit, high active individuals and low fit uh, sedentary individuals. Seeing how, uh, how the blood pressure differs, if it does differ, uh, and then other aspects in terms of arterial stiffness, this sort of stuff. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the skills to do those extra, those, those different measures, if not for the other projects that I've been working on. Right. That's quite a long answer. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, I was going to use ultrasound. Couldn't use ultrasound uh, because it would take too long to get good again. Pivoted. Mm -hmm. Now it's uh, fitness and uh, prolonging responses. Oh, that was a very long but interesting answer. I'm trying to think which way I want to pick this one out. Yeah. Well, I hope, hope other people found it interesting. I sort of got bored of my own voice. <laughs> so we'll start off. So you originally wanted to do mental fatigue. Mental stress. Mental stress, sorry, with prolonged sit-in. Mm. And what you were originally saying is that they both induce... Uh, Vascular dysfunction, increases right. in blood pressure, uh, increases in arterial stiffness. Through different yeah, yeah. So it would have been interesting to see um, <laughs> how that worked. Uh, yeah. If it did work, you know, whether there was, um, whether there is an upper limit of, of dysfunction, you know, this acute dysfunction. Um, but it just, like the first, my first publication, which was going to be sort of the first chapter, it just didn't really, without doing uh, the ultrasound measure of FMD, it just didn't make any sense. Right. So the findings of the, the second meta-analysis just made more sense in terms of the overall story of the thesis, mm -hmm. which is obviously something to bear in mind. Um, I should point out that it, you know, I'm a self-funded PhD student, so I, I have a bit more uh, autonomy in terms of how it goes you know i'm not i'm not dictated by uh funding sources to the same degree as maybe some others are which again probably helps me uh or helped me rather in response to covid was that i was able to do that yeah so you were kind of more lenient in what path you wanted to go down yeah. but at the same time though i think if the from the meta-analysis, that was quite good, wasn't it? Because it, it allowed it to be vague, but then really concluded what kind of pathway to go, wasn't it? Because it's similar to like lab work, isn't it? People say you need to collect lab work to, in order to know uh, what way your PhD is going to go, because you need data to find the answers to which direction. But for yourself, obviously, you're going to do this, uh, the flow-mediated dilation but it's quite a complicated technique. So you decided, right, well, because of COVID, you've done the meta-analysis and then that, that's given you a better guidance on what to do. And you've kind of left the, the mental stress behind now, haven't you? That's your yeah, yeah. Because it, ju it just didn't make as much sense. You know, this, the second meta I did, which was, so the first meta I did was uh, looking at the effect of sitting in FMD. Uh, and then the second one is blood pressure and prolonged sitting. 
the findings of that blood pressure matter just it, it raised a different question and it and it guided those subsequent projects a bit more yeah when you mean changing blood pressure or what like as in up or down yeah 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 so you see quite uh especially in in younger younger more active people from the uh, looking at that meta-analysis you get about uh eight to ten millimeters of mercury increase in blood pressure just by sitting which is quite uh yeah that's quite a marked increase because what goes along with that increase in blood pressure is an increase in arterial stiffness it has to they they are linked so you are then potentially getting increased pulsatile pressure getting to end organs and the microvasculature so it's like it, it's something you know that's uh, that's quite a marked increase even though it might not sound you know partic particularly large it's it's still quite notable so understanding whether that's an effect so is it a case that younger people are just more reactive to it is it a case that older people you know, because you get a morphological change you know the actual structure of arteries changes as we get older does that kind of put a limit on how much sitting can increase it or increase the pressure because the pressure is already higher because the vessel is stiffer so don't know <laughs> so what we want to try and do is get age matched individuals some that are very fit and very active and those that aren't is this likely to be an age related thing or is it likely to be a fitness related see what you mean question but with the sedentary yeah but with with people who are already uh, have sedentary behavior i mean like unfit and stuff surely it's it's going to be bad anyway or so oh yeah yeah i mean they, they should be more active anyway <laughs> yeah um, but it's uh it's trying to understand you know by unpicking this we we're always working to walk like we already know that interrupting sitting is a good thing we we shouldn't sit down for prolonged periods of time if we can we should try and break it up as best we can uh through uh previous stuff has shown uh, aerobic stuff so that's going for a walk uh, going up and down some stairs even uh, like quite vigorous calf raises like fidgeting is how it's normally termed uh, can offset some of the dysfunction um verdict still out on standing desks but yeah i've seen some uh, stuff on that yeah yeah it's a bit it, it's a bit um up and down but what you're seeing is what, essentially what we're trying to get towards are our guidelines you know how often how often do we need to interrupt this and does it change by population because in the same way that we have physical activity guidelines that change depending on age it would make sense that we would have different guidelines for perhaps different ages in terms of breaking up the sedentary behavior or is it people who are generally more sedentary by virtue of their job their commute everything else that they really need to make an effort to break up their sitting more yeah don't know but that's what we're working towards broadly because it's all well and good you know if someone just said to you be more active it doesn't mean anything so at least with physical activity now we have governmental guidelines you know you're 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week 
But what we do have in the physical activity guidelines is interrupt your sitting. Well, how much? How often? Doing what? So that's what we're, our field, our group is generally working towards. So you're really just, you're trying to eliminate all factors just to really pin down what is the cause uh, and what causes this and that and then trying to make guidelines based on eliminating them factors. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's understanding the factor. It's understanding how they might influence it. Um, and then being able to just come up with it. Ultimately, what we're, what our field broadly, our sport and exercise science, generally what we're working towards is, is guidelines. Hmm. You know, we're trying to understand, you know, we, we see epidemiological data, we see this, you know, we see big data, we see um, patterns, but then it comes to kind of like our field or our area, we're trying to understand, okay, why is this happening? What are the factors that influence it? And then it comes down to sort of where you're at and understanding the, you know, what's going on at a cellular level. You know, it's, we need this sort of broad spectrum of research to fully understand problems and whether these problems actually exist, you know, epidemiological data isn't perfect. You know, you can see patterns that, you know, like paradoxes that they don't make any sense. So we rely on the stuff at my level, the stuff at your level to understand, okay, could this happen? Is it happening? Or is it an artifact in the data? Are there other things at play? And prolonged sitting is such a, it's a difficult area just because there's so many variables and people listening, it's like, well, you have to first of all consider how do I actually induce acute prolonged sitting so that it's relating to sedentary behavior? Is it one hour? Is it three hours? Is it eight hours? And because there's no set guidance on that, because from the studies you gave me to read before this, this it's broad, isn't it? I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you typically see kind of like your, your modal symptoms. So most studies at the minute use a three hour, uninterrupted sitting design so that is a, a participant comes in sits down they do not they're free to move their upper limbs but their lower limbs should stay as still as possible i suppose what you're trying to do there is understand depending obviously how frequently you take the measures you're trying to understand the short term um sort of the time course of what's happening and the mechanisms that maybe lead into that and then you do see more free living stuff uh, in terms of, you know, like your eight hour, just ambulatory stuff, you know, putting ambulatory blood pressure monitors on and that sort of stuff. But, it, you know, we, we kind of need those really controlled short studies to understand, well, okay, is anything happening? And why is it happening? Because actually if um, you might say, like, oh, three hours, no one sits for three hours, but we always come at it like you and I coming from the backgrounds we're from, we can't imagine sitting down for three hours and not moving at all. But the vast majority, you know, we also hit our physical activity guidelines, but the vast majority of the population don't. So it should stand to reason that actually sitting for prolonged periods of time isn't as uh, absurd as, as we might originally think. There are plenty of people that sit, uninterrupted for a long period of time 
Yeah, it's it's crazy in my head. Well, you, you you've seen me. I can't even sit down for ten minutes. And I uh, yeah. And since doing this, I'm, I'm the same. You know, I have a standing. I sit to stand desk at home. Um, when I'm in the office, I by design my kettle and my you know all my tea and everything is in a different office. So I have to, if I want a cup of tea, also, it, it makes me break up my sitting. I fidget a lot. Yeah, we do all these things. But that's not, you know, that's not par for the course. Not everyone does that. Actually, most people really uh, almost begrudge. You know, if you say, oh, yeah, you can have a cup of tea, but it's, you know, you've got to walk 60 metres down the other end of the corridor. Ah, stuff that alone. Yeah, honestly, though, I know a PhD student who's in the in the office and she can sit down for eight hours and not move and it's like I don't know how you can do that I can't even sit like I told you I can't even sit down for a full hour I've got a I go for a walk every hour yeah I, I, yeah I'm, I'm one of those people like, I can't uh, I can't focus for that like if I were to sit down pardon me I couldn't sit down for an hour uh, well probably two, two hours is probably the strat I could probably sit down for an hour but you know, I then need to sort of get up and just clear my head a bit. And that's, that's another thing, you know, that's, that's an area that's being explored, hasn't been particularly well explored yet, is actually looking at the effect of these acute bouts of long sitting on cognitive function, looking at um, brain blood flow. Mm-hmm. It should perhaps stands to reason that you know, one of the big things that happens during a bout of prolonged sitting is you get a lot of venous pooling in the lower limb, so the knee downwards, assuming we're sat at sort of your knee is at 90 degrees-ish. If you have that, that venous pooling down there, should it stand to reason that perhaps further up there is now a more limited supply? Does that affect cognition? Does that affect fatigue? Soon we'll figure that out, hopefully. I don't know if you can go into this a bit for me because I see so many people say, I don't want to interrupt my sit-in because I am in the zone, I am focused. What is the literature saying on cognitive function with prolonged sit-in? Not a lot at the minute, truthfully. Um, Yeah, it's appreciated. And you've got to think with cognitive function, executive function, these sorts of things. It depends how you measure it. You know, um, so I recently did uh, another meta-analysis looking at the effect of acute physical activity on executive function, which I just got involved with. Uh, and what that highlighted to me, you know, I'm, I'm now quite far removed from psychology. Um, but what it showed, you know, you've got almost countless ways of assessing it. And each individual test, so a Stroop test, a trail making A or B or a go, no go or a flanker or all of these different tests are measuring different aspects of executive function. So that's almost that's even harder to, to measure because it could be that maybe some aspect of executive function, one part of the brain is more affected than another but you need such enormous samples to figure that out because the effect is probably relatively small. I I would predict. Mm. Uh, And again, it probably depends on, 
is probably mediated at least by how active that person is outside of it as well. You know, if someone's super, you know, that sort of weekend warrior, you know, super, you know, run, runs a marathon Saturday and Sunday, but then is super sedentary the rest of the week because of work, is there, is there some sort of carryover from that that would protect it? And actually the literature at this point isn't defined enough to, to answer that. Yeah. I know from epidemiology, actually, I'm not going to quote that just in case I'm wrong, but I know from like large uh, kind of data analysis, I was reading that one paper and I couldn't get over that the amount of exercise you do a week does not incline that whether you're sedentary or not in terms of, if you're still sitting for seven to nine hours a day and you're not interrupting that sitting, it doesn't matter if you go for a six mile run it doesn't matter, does it? No, so there's really interesting. Um, Professor Eklund is kind of a, a, a real leader in this area. He does these amazing, uh, or he and his team do these amazing harmonized meta-analyses. Um, one of their, kind of his landmark paper, was showing that if you are amongst, the obviously puts everything into quartiles, if you are in the most sedentary quartile, it doesn't matter if you are also in the most active in terms of the amount of meta hours that you accumulate. I think if you sit between, I think the upper quartile is above 10 hours per day, you would, to try and offset that risk, you would have to exercise for two hours that day, which, you know, that, that's, that's way up, and we're talking every day, this is way above your physical activity guidelines. So you have to you have to accumulate a lot of activity to offset it if you are just that sedentary. So what we're trying to do is add these you know these interruptions, and we're not talking about big interruptions. You know, I'm not saying that you should sit down for an hour, run a mile, and come back. What we're saying is maybe maybe it's as simple as if you have a sit stand desk, going from seated to standing every thirty minutes, whether it's uh, fidgeting under the you know just moving your legs under the desk or you know go into the canteen at work or whatever it is we just need to break it up a little bit but, uh, yeah there, there, there are some, there's some strong data now about the you know there are good strong epidemiological links between the amount of sedentary behavior you accumulate of which i should say prolonged sitting is classed as a sedentary behavior um, so there's this real strong link between sedentary behavior and all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease, and all the rest. It's scary, isn't it? It's so scary when you think about it. And you just think of all in places, like on a bus, when you're driving somewhere. That's sitting, isn't it? That, that would count. Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of that, it's funny you say bus driver, and that was kind of the landmark study that kicked all this off back in the 60s. Uh, I think his name was Morris. Yeah, uh, it, was the, it was the first one to identify a higher incidence of cardiovascular disease in bus drivers compared to bus conductors. Obviously, the driver sits down all day driving and the conductor is up and down. Yeah, this is in London. We're talking about old route masters. So you're up and down stairs, um, up and down checking people's tickets. And you saw that the drivers had that higher incidence of CBD. And that was kind of the, the, the starting point for this. And then obviously it's accelerated a lot within the last 10 years. 
Because we think cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of global death, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. And you think prolonged sitting <laughs> accounts for a large amount Oh, if that's fair to say. Yeah, well, it, it, it certainly contributes. I don't want to say a large amount okay. because the chances are what you've, if, if you picture the individual that sits for really prolonged periods of time and doesn't exercise and eats badly, uh, you know, th- there's a lot going in there. But what we, so it would probably be misrepresentative of the data to say that like prolonged things that the silver bullet and if we stop that everything else will die no probably okay. isn't but it's still but, it is some, but it's something that's really easy to adjust in our lives and it's something that we uh, should certainly be cognizant of and it's why it's now included in physical activity guidelines they just need to be better recommendation rather than broadly move more because that doesn't that doesn't really help yeah, it's like when people are trying to lose weight and you say, oh, eat less, move more. It's like, well, yeah, no, you're right. But it's not specific enough to be of any use to anyone. I know. I'm going to I'm gonna have another podcast about this as well because everyone gets mixed up with that. I don't want to go too much into this now. But yeah, it's just a principle. And whilst it is a simple principle, the principle of football is simple. You score a goal. With yeah, you score more than the other team, you win. Great job. But how it's not as simple as that, is it? You've got defenders, you've got midfielders, you've got like different rules where offside, all this kind of stuff. So it, whilst the principle's simple, there's different aspects and there's different variables to consider. I think this is the same with losing weight. So just saying eat less, exercise more, or burn more. <laughs> it's a simple principle just taken out of context this day and age. Um, yeah, yeah. And actually, I think we... We fall into this is a bit off tangent, but we fall into this um, to this soundbite world where you know, as I say, like you think a lot of people get their news from Twitter limited to 140 characters. We fall into this world of short, sharp messages, and actually, sometimes I think that gets taken out of context for people. You know, like the uh, eat less, move more. Actually, if you look at the people that a lot, you know, smart people that are saying that normally have loads to say afterwards you know like what this means is this is how you do but that's not the soundbite that's not what we that's not what normal people take away that's not what's reported by media so that that, that, that's a different rabbit hole that's uh too many things to cover craig (laughs) too many things to cover man but um coming back to the prolonged set then anyway there is evidence though to say if you exercise before cognitive skills, I'm sure that improves the outcome, yeah. yes? Yeah. Okay. But then what you're saying is there's not really that much literature on uh, interrupting the sit-in with cognitive function, is there? Not yet. But what is it saying? Like, just the very small amounts, what, what is it leading to? Yeah, it, it, and honestly, it's, it's varied. It's too varied to even say, because again, we've got too many too many variables with it in terms of you've got so what one of the more recent papers you're looking at older people typically people who are generally more sedentary so perhaps you're already front loading that question or you're front loading your answer but you kind of know what you're going to see that this bout of sitting may well may well impact it but 
on that you, you don't see those studies very often with your typical sample uh, in these sorts of studies, which is your undergraduate population, because obviously that's where most of this research is done. It's just too varied. I, I couldn't I couldn't even tell you where it's trending because at the minute it's a scatter plot. It's a scatter plot created by a shotgun. Like it's it's a bit all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Not not to pie the question, but that we're just we're nowhere near a consensus there. No, that's fair enough. That's understandable. I think it would it would make sense that sedentary behaviour would negatively impact it, but we haven't got the data to back that up. No, that's fine. But it would make sense. Oh, the reason why I was asking that is just because I like seeing the two arguments between um, people doing a PhD, for example. They say, oh, well, if I'm doing work and I'm in the zone, I don't want to leave that zone. I also do agree with that. I don't see the... Uh, I think having a quick break, giving a little quick break off just two or three minutes, a little bit of exercise, even if it's just a walk around the building, I, th- I personally believe that that would benefit you more doing the work rather than just just sitting there for four hours or yeah so i think most people probably you know when you're talking about phd students they can self-regulate when they need to take that break so you know you'll you'll know like if you're really in it and you're cracking away and the the tasks that you're doing is just a slog uh sometimes like when you're analyzing data that can be a bit of just you just need to sit down and do it. Uh, whereas when you, you know, if you hit a wall, if you're doing something that's a, maybe a bit more creative or you need to think, it's like when you're writing, for example, that's when I think you probably would benefit from, you know, breaking up that bout and going for a wander. But I haven't really got any data for that. I'm, I suppose I'm just talking from my own experience. I know like if I'm, if I'm analyzing uh, loads of data, like it's not, it's, not it's not actually mentally it's not that mentally taxing like it's you know i'm not having to think i'm not i'm having to think but not you know it's not really hard thought i'm just going through and i do this and i do that and i do this whereas when i am writing i do tend to take a lot of break because writing doesn't come very naturally to me so i have to like if i hit a block i go for a walk I call my thinking walks. People know not to talk to me when I'm walking around campus on a thinking walk. Yeah, it's a difficult one. And I wish there was more literature on it because I, tr- I truly believe, well, this isn't really based on literature. This is just my own thoughts. Yeah, let's throw science to the wind first. We'll just talk about what we think. No, no I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But, uh, but hopefully in the next few years, we can see some good literature and some good yeah i think that, you know executive function stuff like that it's, it's just a really difficult field because you're only talking typically like quite small effect sizes when you look at it statistically so to accurate obviously to accurately detect those small sizes you just need enormous samples when we're talking about you know you were you were involved in a in a few participants of uh of one of our sing projects it's really, really time intensive. You know, if, if you have a participant that sits, you know, their sitting period is three hours, you've probably gone for five. So it's, you know, to try and get a, a typical sample size that you'd see in psychology, you know, 100 people, that's a lot of hours. 
It is, it is. A lot of hours and a lot of analysis, because chances are you're not just going to take um, executive function measures. If, if you're putting in that much time, you're probably doing other measures. Yeah. When you come to planning PhD or any kind of lab work you're doing, whether it's for a project, a side project, it's difficult because writing it out is so much easier than actually doing it. And even like you were saying, the FMD or using the ultrasound, sorry for that. Probably for yourself, understanding the technique might be relatively straightforward. I don't know if, if you... Yeah, well, yeah, it's, again, yeah, easy, you know, simple enough principle. Yeah. Hard. But then actually applying it, that's where the, the real hard bit happens, isn't it? Especially with human work. Yeah, we, we, have a, we have a saying in our lab, whereas by the time you finish the last participant, you're probably ready to start data collection. Yeah, you know, by, the time, by the time you got through it and you figured everything out, you're probably at the end of the project because there are things that, um, you know, when you're planning it, and we, we're, very, we're very particular that everything, that everything is timed out. You know, you know how long each bit is going to take, you know what you're doing. Uh, our data collection sheets are very, very thorough, uh, and we'll go through kind of like our own internal review within the team to make sure that we all agree. But you know, sure as the season's changing, mm-hmm. it won't be perfect. It probably won't be perfect for a couple of participants in. You get missing data points or stuff that just didn't add up time wise. Is what it is. I think actually sometimes we we get down the we can get down, especially as PhD students, we get down this horrible rabbit hole of perfectionism, which I don't think is very healthy. You know, we we take a lot of measures whenever we do any of our projects, but there are you know there's probably one or two measures which are like this is the main question. Everything else is ancillary. So it's kind of like, well, it, if we miss those, yeah, it is what it is. Mm. We're, as long as we get those main ones, I think that's probably a way to, to do it. Because if you, you know, if you go down the perfectionist route, like sometimes some, some techniques don't work on certain people, or it's just too difficult. You know, anything ultrasound-based, you're really relying on you know, the vascular architecture. And some, you know... Um, yeah, if you've if you've ever tried to use ultrasound on a femoral artery, like someone's got really big thighs, it's really hard. Yeah, and, and you you could sink ages into trying to find that. But if it's a secondary outcome, and it's and it's now going to affect everything else, like I, I tell you what, we'll, we'll leave it. Yeah, I agree with that. I think even from my own work and even the master's work I was doing, we were doing the vena puncture trying to take the blood but some people we just could not find the vein and you had to just cancel that participant out and yeah, and you just get and you just get another one you know if a technique you, you just you, you make the best of what you can yeah i think it's definitely difficult i think as you said because we try and get perfection in a phd and we really like to because there's no structure in a PhD, and what I mean by that is you make the structure yourself. We plan everything 
into such, or most people plan it into such detail when something doesn't go right or uh, a technique you can't use. It's quite difficult to accept, but that is just definitely part of the process. And mm. It's something I've struggled with as well with a PhD, uh, not getting a technique right straight away and just knowing it's just about constantly doing it until you actually can. I th- when you look at a research paper, you see this nice data, you see these lovely blots or nice graphs, this kind of stuff. You're like, oh, but you don't actually, you don't even know how much effort went into achieving yeah. that data. Blood, sweat and tears that goes into a project. And yeah, you know, it's really, it's really difficult when you, again, where you, I think it was, it was something, uh, one of your previous guests say, uh, or said rather, um, talking about typically people that are doing PhDs are generally high achievers. But when you get into the real world of research, thing it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Like it, you get a lot that goes wrong and, and it's learning to deal with that is a skill in itself. Definitely. I think that's probably one of the hardest things people might struggle with with a PhD is just accepting the failures. But you've just got to get used to it being part of the process. Probably sounds stupid to other people who are in different jobs and stuff. But yeah, <laughs> research is about going through the failures. And Yeah, yeah. Well, you've got to think ultimately, like when you talk about research, like doing a PhD is really cool because your job essentially is to go in, think, and try and push, you know, push your area just a little bit further. And in doing so, inevitably, something doesn't work, you know. Um, but that's how you, you know, that's how you find out. You know, for all the things that work, there are probably 10 things that didn't work. But the, the only reason, it, you know, the only reason we know things that work, you know, the only reason we know anything is because someone has failed a lot in trying to figure it out. And that I, that's something that I think just cut. It comes with the more with the more failures you have, you just sort of like, yeah, okay, fine. Which comes, you know, the more the more involved you are with more projects throughout your PhD, and then obviously into your early career. Because the PhD is only the start of the career. You got a career of failure ahead. You know, yeah, <laughs> trying to figure stuff out. And so many people think like that, don't they? it comes back to the perfection thing need to remember we, we all need to remember sorry when you're doing a phd you are just you, you try to tell me yes when i stress out we won't talk about what i stress over just about the research <laughs> fester it's just a qualification it's literally just a qualification to get you into the the world of research and i think having that mindset really does help because yeah and it's not to dismiss a PhD, you know, it, again, this is kind of simplifying again, isn't it? Um, or oversimplifying things, saying it's just a qualification. But at its fundamental core, it, it is. And it's the start of your research career. And don't, don't just don't get swept up in it. Because hopefully you've got an entire career ahead of you to forge out what you're doing, why you're doing it, what's your contribution to this area. 
they'll get they'll get swept up in the three or four years that it takes to do a PhD and think that it ends. Mm-hmm. Like that's the start. I think when you get that mindset and you overcome the fear of failing, my gosh, it becomes so much more fun. I personally yeah. think anyway. Yeah, like we, like I've got a couple of experimental measures uh, with my, with the project I'm doing at the minute, looking at uh, continuous arterial stiffness measures using uh, something called photoplasmography. Some of it doesn't work. Doesn't work at all. It's dreadful. But I've learned something about analysing that data, and I've learned that actually this probably isn't something to invest a lot of time in. So fine, crack on. Yeah, I've been trying to do loads of uh, side projects. I say side projects, just lab work, just trying to, I'm reading something in the paper and then just, I'm just trying to change the environment in the cells. So like I tried inducing insulin resistance last week. That was quite fun. That was good practice. I'll find out after when I come back from Christmas if it's worked or not. Um, (laughs) I can see smirk smirk in there. That's the fun of it, right? Like, yeah. Um, and I think sometimes we forget, like, what a what a privileged position it is to to be in that sort of environment. I know, I know, not everyone has the same same environment for their PhDs. Um, but certainly within the sciences, like your, your job is just to go in and figure stuff out. Like, that's a cool job. Yeah. And you got to really uh, enjoy that because once you know, once you, uh, you know, if you get a lecturing role or a teaching role or whatever it is, I, I just don't think you'll have that freedom again. Obviously, I don't know. I'm not there yet, but I can't imagine having this level of freedom and enjoyability for for a long time. Sam said it as well in his episode. You were saying about this this three or four years of PhD, you, as much as you've got a specific project looking in an area, like you've got a lot of freedom. There's no stress to kind of keep on getting grants in or nothing because it's just the PhD. You haven't got the stress of a lecturer where they have to publish a certain amount each year. They have to get this much grants. If they ain't got to teach undergrads, they've got master project, PhD student. You haven't got any of that yet. No, no. Your job is literally to go in and figure stuff out. Yeah. Like, <laughs> cool. That is cool. If you told if you told me at school that Craig, your job is going to be just to go and try and figure stuff out, yeah, cool. I take that. Higher level stuff, you know, I'm not I'm not figuring out my shopping list, but you know, you know what I mean. We're thinking at a higher level, which is fun. Yeah, it is fun. I know that you're actually not. I was going to ask you another question, just about. I know this isn't really covering your area, but I'm just interested, just for a personal opinion. Is there any date that has shown that uh, prolonged sitting has any effect on lower back pain? This is just something I'm interested. Uh, yeah, there is, uh, but don't quiz me about it. Uh, the, I think there's been that there's probably a lot of research about you know because that's the that's almost the field of ergonomics, right? Mm. Um, and why you can buy chairs which cost two grand. Yeah, I mean that they must be informed by some sort of research, or someone's having a real laugh with their money. Uh, I think there is quite a lot 
uh, of research. And that's why, you know, if you work in an institution, more often than not, you'll have the, there will be someone from health and safety who comes and makes sure that your desk is ergonomically suitable. So that's it. That's informed by something. But yeah, don't, don't quiz me about that. I, I don't know the data. I don't know that area. No, I know. I know. It's uh, that was just a personal question. I was just interested to know, just to see if it was. But well, that's, that's totally yeah. fine. I know anecdotally, I had a, you know, at the start of, obviously I've got a, a, a semi-decent chair at the office at uni. And I know like, my desk set up at home was only ever meant to be a like a, a backup you know I was never expecting to do that much work here so my chair the chair that I had was 20 quid well the first, after the first lockdown I mean my back still hasn't recovered you know my lower back my upper back so anecdotally I'd say yeah prolonged sitting definitely does your back in yeah I knew you had to bring the desk set up in I'm so jealous I was speaking to Annabelle last week for the podcast and oh you two I've by far got the nicest PhD desk setups. I'm just so jealous. I'm just with my laptop. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, just got to get there first, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I'm, uh, yeah. Th- this is just this is solely good fortune. Like uh, the, you know, I've got a sit to stand desk which I bought with. Uh, money from winning the three-minute thesis competition at University of Gloucestershire. Otherwise, I would not have bought what is a very expensive desk. Yeah. Um, my really big monitor, well, that was a TV. That was my TV. But then I won a competition uh, and won a bigger TV. <laughs> so it became my monitor. Yeah, th- th- this is just good luck. Like a laugh. Come on. Good luck, good um, research. That's all you got then. Yeah, but- do you know what I find crazy as well is with the prolonged sit-in, I think we touched on it just slightly earlier, is it's very common in office jobs now that people eat when they sit as well at Ooh. the desk. Some people don't even try and separate that. Yeah, I know. Really, there's more data on that to see that that even in, sorry, declines vascular function, increases peripheral artery even more. Yeah, so... Uh... Uh, I think it's in review at the minute, uh, so I can't say too much, but we looked at um, the effect of high fat, a high-fat meal versus a low-fat meal yeah. uh, and its effect on central and peripheral uh, measures. And the short summary of that is consumption of a high-fat meal mm. led to a greater degree of vascular dysfunction than a controlled low-fat meal. And then our collaborators have done a similar thing, but looking at high GI carbohydrate versus low GI carbohydrate. And this is, you know, touched on something we spoke about earlier, is trying to understand, obviously, all the other stuff that goes on with with prolonged sitting. Um, Because people don't just sit down. You know, the the reason they're sat down is because... uh, Or rather that, you know, they're at work, so they're going to eat, they're going to... Yeah, could even be. You think how many cups it? You know, my PhD is powered by cups of tea, but I don't. I have no idea what the effect of caffeine uh, with this. You know, whether that's uh, having a detrimental effect, whether it would over a long period of time. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I know certainly at the minute, like in uh, in the office, 
obviously with COVID restrictions and everything. I eat at my desk. I, yeah. I, it, it seems it seems daft to me to go and uh, eat in the canteen. You know, why would I? Yeah, you know, I'm in an office with two other people that aren't in very often. So essentially, I, most of the time I'm by myself. Why would I then go and get you know put myself in that situation? So I tend to eat at my desk. But yeah, there's a lot goes it. You know. You know, sitting essentially, it's the posture and the low energy expenditure. That's what qualifies it as a sedentary behavior. But we do a lot of other stuff. We eat, we drink, we get stressed, we, you know, we, we live. So it's trying to understand whether those other factors uh, maybe influence the vascular dysfunction that we see. But there's almost unlimited questions there. Definitely. So. It's an interesting area and why your PhD is in it, isn't it, mostly? Yeah, yeah. I'm very, well, I think it's interesting. Um, Not everyone might agree. Um, But it's it's something that's very real world. And I hope that what we're doing is ultimately leading us somewhere. This is so common. And as economies around the world become more... Um, I don't like the phrase westernized, but I think people know what I mean by that. Um, but as we see more and more office-based jobs, this will continue to be more and more of a problem. So we need to understand it. And hopefully we're heading towards that. Some level of understanding anyway. Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest take or message, I don't know what you think about it, well, well, I want to see what your opinion is. Is it just the just to interrupt it as much as you can? Is that the best advice you could give at this stage? So the be- the best advice right now uh, is to try and interrupt your sitting every thirty minutes or so, and that interruption should last. So yeah, longer the better, but at a minimum maybe one or two minutes of something. So we're not talking loads, but you know, that's how we, in an ideal world you would, uh, you would structure that. But it is one piece of the puzzle. You know, this is how we reduce the risk associated by prolonged sitting, but we also need to make sure obviously our, our nutrition is good, that we are hitting our physical activity guideline. You, you, there's a lot goes into this. Best advice as it pertains to sitting, try and interrupt it every half an hour if you can. Uh, with the longer the interruption, the better. And that interruption might be going for a walk, going up and down some stairs, some fidgeting. Um, maybe in time we will see more evidence for sit to stand transitions. Yeah, that I think if you just kept doing squats, that that will be fine. Uh, you'll see there's there's evidence for simple resistance activities but in terms of a standing desk or whatever the, the evidence of the minutes a bit shaky despite me having one <laughs> um, yeah interrupt every half an hour longer the better awesome yeah it'd be, it'd be really good to see in five ten years time just to see if there is more specific guidelines uh, for this and if it's 
related to age. Uh, it'd also be good to see like an office work. I, cause, well, I don't work in a conventional office type job, but I, I don't know. I can't imagine there's guidelines there for them, is there? I know. No, not the minute. And I think in the next 10 years or so, we'll, we, we'll be a lot closer towards proper guidelines rather than just sit less, move more. Uh, you know, the epidemiological data is growing for it. Now we just need um, more lab-based stuff just to con- confirm the associations that we're seeing or disprove the associations that we're seeing. Um, and then make that move, make that transition towards guidelines in time. Awesome. No, thanks, Craig. Really appreciate you coming on today. Just before you do go, is there any advice you'd have for people wanting to study a PhD and then any advice for whilst doing one? Advice for people wanting to do it. Find a funded one. That's a great, great piece of advice. And just, just enjoy it. Actually, the advice is the same for people that are doing it. Enjoy it enjoy the fact that your job is to figure stuff out. Your job is to go in and think. And it's unlikely that you'll ever have that, that level of freedom, that level of enjoyment in a job again. So enjoy it and roll with the punches that come with the felt. Like you'll fail. It's fine. Crack on. Nice. Cracking advice. Thanks, Craig. Thank you, first. Thanks for having you on. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll hopefully do another one again, maybe in like a year's time. Might even be finished. Why? Well, yeah. I haven't bored your audience too much with this one. Who knows? <laughs> nice one, mate. Cheers. Yeah, bye. Hi, everyone. Hope you all enjoyed, and I will see you all next time.